Welcome to Intriguing Interviews, where fascinating people share captivating stories. I'm Chad Elliott, your tour guide on this audio hitchhiking journey. This is the third in our experimental series of interviews exploring the life of Rick Archer. To prepare for our deep dive into a secret world of crime and espionage with Rick, I'll share a story with you about the havoc that ensues when you let an ignorant homeschooled kid loose in the world. It's late afternoon on a day in February of 2003. I step out of a car, thank the driver, and look around at the main street of a small East Coast town. I'm here for a week-long workshop in psychology and communication skills that normally attracts adults. Adults who fly into town. Adults who prearrange cars and hotels. Adults. Not bizarre 17-year-old homeschooled kids who hitchhike into town without a plan. I walk over to a payphone and dial a number. A woman picks up and I say, I'm here for the workshop in a few days, but I'm not sure what to do now. She says, tell me where you are and wait there. An employee named Wayne picks me up and is nice enough to let me stay in the spare bedroom of his home. And the next day, I meet the woman who runs the company, Karen. She says, I like your gumption. After the workshop, why don't you come work for us as an assistant? I agree and feel super excited. I've got the opportunity to get paid to learn. What's more, a few days later, my checkbook comes in the mail from my family, who had kept it while I was hitchhiking. My family had always been pretty poor, but a relative had left me about $12,000, so I'm now the richest I've ever been. I can finally start to build the life I've always dreamed of having. But here's the problem. You need social skills to build the life you've always dreamed of having. And as a 17-year-old kid who spent much of his childhood friendless, alone in his bedroom, just waiting to escape the prison of his home, let's just say people skills are something I sorely lack. This becomes obvious one day, when my new coworker Wayne invites me to a small gathering in someone's living room. Everybody is at least twice as old as I am. It's a new agey type thing where strangers hug each other hello and we all sit in a circle with some people cross-legged on the floor. A man says, let's move past the normal social barriers and speak our minds. We'll each tell someone else something we think about them that we normally wouldn't say. Let go of filters, real honesty. I offer to go first. Eager to do a good job, I look at a woman who sits on the couch across from me. I tell her, you're really very fat. A wave of awkwardness splashes over the room. I'm confused, but then I listen as everyone else says things like, you exude a deep warmth. I feel an instant trust with you. I love you. I think to myself, that's not fair. The, the rules weren't clear. I, 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 I thought I was doing a good job. This was just one of my frequent blunders. I had all the social graces of a baboon wearing a tuxedo, minus the tuxedo. Yet, I'm still surprised one morning when my new boss, Karen, calls me into her office, sits me down, and bluntly says, Chad, nobody here likes you. You're fired. 
I'm all alone in a tiny one-bedroom apartment with ceilings so low I sometimes bang my head. And I'm at a loss for what to do since I don't know how to find a job. I don't have a computer, any useful skills, or even a diploma. What's more, I don't own a car. It's not until late August that I managed to buy a cheap 1989 Toyota Camry. But I don't have a driver's license, so the car just sits around until I manage to get a license in late November. Meanwhile, I pay to attend another workshop with the company that fired me because I still feel they can teach me how to become a successful person. I also begin volunteering with them, doing random chores for free, hoping to get back in their good graces. But they seem to dislike me as much as ever. As all this goes on, the money in my bank account dwindles. By Christmas, I'm down to my last 200 bucks. As the days tick off to New Year's, I have no idea how I'll pay January's rent. I would never, ever ask my family for help. I don't want to be indebted to them or even connected to them. I fought for my freedom and I'm going to keep it or go down trying. So on New Year's Eve, I sit in my cold little apartment with the ceilings that are too low and I realize I'm screwed. Really, really screwed. And I wonder, how soon will my landlord evict me? Where will I go? On New Year's Day, my phone rings. It's my old boss, Karen. She says, look, you've worked hard this past year. You've helped by volunteering, and I've seen you maturing. So I want you to come back to work. Relief floods me. I'm safe. Eh, at least for now. Sometimes all that keeps us from falling through the cracks in life is an unexpected act of kindness. That one act of kindness from someone who may not even like us can change the course of our life. Today, in my interview with Rick Archer, we'll get to enjoy a surprising twist on that theme. In our previous two interviews, we learned how Rick became the poor, ostracized kid in a school for Texas's wealthy elite. Now, we'll see how his life falls apart at the seams and the bizarre twists of fate that save him. In this episode, you'll hear about a mysterious genius who rose out of poverty and received orders to kill Hitler. You'll learn how a mafia boss saved a little girl from a life of misery. And you'll discover how a school's biggest loser became the hero of the prom. So get out your World War II memorabilia, drop into an underground bunker, and listen to the further adventures of Rick Archer. So I'm curious, so you had this really fascinating teacher named Mr. Souls. Tell me what you've learned about him and his history. He's a pretty mysterious guy. I, I didn't know a thing about the man. All I knew was he was an impressive guy. His bearing, his um, perceptiveness. But a couple of years ago, 
uh, his son ran across something I'd written about his father. And so we sat down and his son told me a couple stories that absolutely blew me away. And I'd like to share those with you. Yeah. Well, first of all, at, here at my prep school, everybody was born with a um, silver spoon in their mouth, but not Mr. Saul's. This guy grew up on a little bitty island called Vinyl Haven off the coast of Maine. He may have had at most 10 people in his senior class, maybe it was five, whatever. Yes, yeah, small. This is like little house on the prairie. You could not expect top flight teachers in a, in a remote place like that. <laughs> and, and, he, and he had a really poor upbringing. I mean, his father died when he was young. His brother died when he was 15. It was just him and his mother. And Mr. Sauls would work in the um, granite quarry or he'd work in the uh, lobster area. He did whatever he could to, to scratch by. His mother was, uh, did a vegetable garden. They just, they basically eked it out. Yeah. Somehow, this guy made it to Exeter, the finest prep school in New England, and nobody knows why or how. That's what's so amazing about this man. He did these amazing things, but he never explained what happened to anybody, including his own children. But somehow, after he graduated from high school, he got a scholarship to Exeter, and no one knows how he did it. From Exeter, he got a full scholarship to Harvard. I mean, this man was clearly brilliant. Obviously. But not only that, he had to be a hard worker and he had to be the most ambitious guy on earth. And somehow he caught the attention of these places, managed to get in. Oh, yeah. Probably of his own volition. You, I just wish I knew the answer to the mystery. But at any rate, for some reason, he had this fascination with German. No one knows why. He was so interested in German, he actually took a, a summer trip to Germany in uh, 1936, and he watched Hitler give one of his famous uh, uh, speeches in Munich. And while he was there, he met a devastatingly pretty deb debutante from Dallas, Texas. She was on uh, summer vacation. It was a you know, reward for graduating. Uh-huh. And they had this love affair. Now, mind you, this girl he met, she was like from the elite. You know, she had the choices of all these like cute guys from the prep schools and the colleges in the Massachusetts area. Mm -hmm. She chose Mr. Saul's. And they um, carried on their romance once they made it back to uh, the United States. But it led to an amazing story. So Mr. Saul's is teaching German at some prep school okay. when Pearl Harbor gets bombed. The next thing you know, everybody is signing up, you know, to join the war effort. And Saul's is no different. He signs up and no one, and these people are in a hurry. They don't really pay much attention. They just send them somewhere. So here is Mr. Saul's with his elite education, Harvard education. He's doing a mechanics job on some destroyer out in the Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, he, he speaks fluent German. So one day he, he hits his thumb with a hammer because he, he's a terrible mechanic. 
<laughs> and he starts cussing in German. You know, Ach du Lieber, God in Himmel, you know, Himmel Donnerwetter. Which is probably not the best idea. No, you don't During really. World War II no, on an American be... vessel. <laughs> well, every, the place just stopped. Every guy around him just stopped and started staring. <laughs> no one said a word. And Mr. Sauls gets like this red face. Oops. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the next thing you know, a man says, uh, the captain wants to speak to you, Sauls. So I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall because he had some <laughs> explaining to do. But obviously, all he was trying to do was he had taught himself to curse in German so he wouldn't get busted when he like said bad words. That's funny. Well, the next thing you know, he's on a plane, plane ride to New York. He has joined uh, the Naval Intelligence. Because he was much more useful with his fluency in in German than as a mechanic. Right. Well, it turns out right at the end of the war, it's not a well-known story that there was an operation to assassinate Hitler. It's like something straight out of one of the war movies. Mm -hmm. Sauls was going to parachute in with his, his team, and he was going to be dressed as a German military agent, like, you know, the Gestapo. Yeah. And he, because of his fluent German, he was going to he was gonna front for all the other guys who were going to keep their mouths shut. Okay. It was a suicide mission, but fortunately, the war ended just before they were sent overseas. So he, he, was, he was just weeks away, perhaps, from being the man weeks, responsible for killing Hitler. Away. Right, exactly. Could have been... But instead, when he got back to America after the war, uh, he married that girl he had met in Germany, and she had heard a rumor that there was a new school being established in Houston, Texas, called St. John's. And due to his background, he was hired immediately as the um, assistant headmaster. So he was at the formation of my school uh, from, from day one. Brilliant, brilliant guy. And he played a huge role in my life. Yeah, so how did he, how did he uh, influence you? Mr. Sauls was my German teacher for the 9th, 10th, and 11th grade and was the most guarded, taciturn man I've ever met. Mm-hmm. But he fascinated me because he was so intensely uh, alert. He, had a, he taught a really boring subject, German. <laughs> the problem with American students is we don't get to use foreign language as much. It's not like in Europe where, like, you know, right. a yeah, state's distance Europe, away, you have Europe five different actually, languages. actually, there's a practical reason to learn other languages. But especially for a kid like me who's never, you know, traveled outside the United States borders, German makes no sense whatsoever. But they made us take a language. And to my surprise, Mr. Sauls made it interesting. And that impressed me because I had had other teachers who taught interesting subjects, that put, <laughs> but, he, but they put me to sleep. Yeah, they, made, they made the interesting boring, and, the, and then there's someone who makes the boring interesting. Right. So what Mr. Sauls did was he just, he had this amazing way of challenging us to keep up. You know, he had this like blitz trick. He would name the German word. We had to come up with the English word and the first kid to get it more power to him. And he kept scoring like over the chalkboard and said, that's one for Rick. That's one for Amy. And we had raced to be the first one to five. 
He understood how competitive we were. He used it to keep us on our toes. We wanted to win that contest, and we accidentally learned German in the process. That's a good teacher. He's a great teacher. He also, he threw erasers at us. (laughs) If someone like daydreamed or wander off, he would pick up an eraser and he would hit the person. It doesn't matter whether it was a girl or a boy, he would throw that thing as hard as he could. So another another technique like the how you talked about Mr. Curran holding the kid upside down by his ankles. Mr. Curran turned people upside down. Well, this things he can't get away with today. I never in four or three years with Saul's got hit by an eraser, but guys next to me, even girls <laughs> got hit. Oh, and the girls would like scream. And then they would start crying. And Mr. Sauls could care less. He he didn't play favorites. He didn't uh, have a teacher's pet. He just wanted us to pay attention. And we did. He was the most alert human being I've ever met in my life. And I, I just want to clarify that he did not actually really physically hurt. The, like when someone cried, it wasn't because they were physically hurt. They were embarrassed. or no, they, they, they were embarrassed. They, were, they got chalk on themselves, that kind of thing. They got chalk on themselves and they were humiliated. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> but it only, it only took two or three events early in the year and it didn't matter anymore. You <laughs> yeah. know, it only happened in the first month. And by that, and then we got the idea. When, once you set the standard, people, people will get in line. So how did he influence you? Here's the thing. He was he was so guarded that we he only actually spoke to me directly once in my life. Really? He Yes. There was an assignment to draw a map of Germany and I I poured my soul into this map and I was, you know, pretty proud of it. But one day I saw this map that one of the girls had drawn and it was so he was in color and it had a picture of of uh, the the Alps and the Black Forest and and the Lorelei mermaids and the beautiful Rhine River and all the German castles and beer gardens and it's just like sounds like she should have worked for the tourist uh, commission. It was the Mona Lisa of of German maps. That's all I can say. And I'm just staring at this thing open mouth all by myself. And Mister Sauls looked over and he says, "Yes, girls." Aren't they amazing? <laughs> that's all he ever said to you. That's all he ever, That's the one thing he ever said to me. But I had a rapport with him. But it was strictly based on eye contact. He, you know, he smiled at me because I was always doing. This guy, I think this guy saw himself in me. I didn't know why he did, but in retrospect, he was the hardworking underdog kid who made it. And now he saw another underdog, hardworking kid, and I think his heart went out to me, even though he refused to like acknowledge that we had this bond. And of course, I had no idea what his background was. All I knew was he was interested in me, but he never said a word. Well, you did, you did talk with him about college, right? Well, that's an important part of my story. Mr. Saul's became the headmaster in my senior year, and he had to stop teaching German. But he had a a kind of like a side responsibility. He was the one uh, each student, each senior went to to get suggestions as to what college to go to. Mr. Saul's 
really threw me for a loop. You know, I was trying to go to Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., because my aunt and uncle lived right across the river, and this would allow me to be part of their family, something I deeply desired. So as far as I was concerned, I was just going to Georgetown, and all I wanted to do was chat with Mr. Sauls. The moment I got there, he started talking about this school called Johns Hopkins. It was in Baltimore, Maryland, and quite frankly, I'd never even heard of it. Mm -hmm. And I could not figure out why Johns Hopkins was important to this man. It just, it made no sense. Georgetown was a perfectly good university. Yeah. And and then he comes around and, and he admits that Johns Hopkins is a men's school. Well, which, uh, which, <laughs> yeah, I've never had a date in my four years at, at St. John's. I've got this face from hell thanks to all that acne. I've got scars everywhere and I have no social skills and I have no confidence. I wouldn't dream of asking one of these bright and beautiful St. John's girls for a date. But if I could get to college, I thought I could maybe start over. So the last thing you want to do is go to an all-boys school. It's absolutely out of the question. And there was another thing that I absolutely missed. The first thing that Mr. Saul said when we sat down was, Mr. Archer, it's important that you apply to three schools. One would be your fondest dream. One would be your most practical choice. Mm -hmm. And one would be a school that you will absolutely be able to get into and afford. Nice. Well, that makes sense. Very logical. It's actually good advice. Well, here's the deal. I found out after this meeting that Georgetown cost $6,000 a year. Yeah, which is like 10 times as much nowadays. Oh, my God. Maybe more. I don't know, yeah. but it's prohibitive. Sure. And why didn't he say something about the University of Texas? I could have gone to the University of Texas for $1,000. Mm -hmm. I had this grocery store job. I had $3,000 saved up. I could have gone for three years to the University of Texas out of my own pocket. Mm -hmm. And then maybe I could have even gotten a scholarship. But no, all he did was insist I apply to Johns Hopkins. And I was really bitter. Yeah. The reason being... It costs like $75 to apply. And you're earning how much at the grocery store at that time? I'm earning $1.50 an hour. That's like two weeks of work just to apply to this school I had no intention of going to. Uh -huh. The whole meeting absolutely angered me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why is he pushing this stupid university when he knows perfectly well where I want to go? And he should have advised me to go to the University of Texas in addition. Uh -huh. Well, this was going to backfire on me badly because I was going to reach a point the next spring where money was so tight, I could not afford Georgetown to save my soul, but I could have gone to UT, but it was too late. We'll, we'll get back to that part of the story. So you uh, did, did, what did you say when, when he asked you to do this? I said I would do it. I mean, I had too much respect for the man to, to turn him down, but he, his insistence went right over my head. And that is like the theme for my senior year, because I, there was something going on that, that senior year that com, com, I completely missed. In fact, I, I was so in the dark, I almost wonder 
Well, I have this theory sometimes that we're blinded, and I'm talking like in a religious sense that we're blinded because maybe there's something we aren't meant to know till the right time. So you, he's just suggested you go to the school you've you've or apply to these three schools, which is going to cost you several weeks a fortune. of a fortune. Uh, we've already established that your father had spent your uh, college money on your facial on my acne on your acne operations yeah so my mother's absolutely broke even though she grew up in a wealthy family well yeah but she's broke Mm -hmm. she's you know they that's that's long gone she's absolutely broke and she does the stupidest thing she's ever done in her life she scratches enough money together to buy a house in this slum north of houston this college I want to go to is going to cost 6000 a year. Mm-hmm. All right, so that puts me into the realm of scholarship. There are two ways for me to get a scholarship. One is to apply, and, and that's out of the question. I, I fell apart one day when I realized that in order to get a scholarship, your parents have to fill out these forms. And I knew my father would never cooperate. So he wouldn't even fill out a form for you? He would not even fill out a form for me. There was no way. There, you just, my father had basically abandoned me. Why do you think that is? Chad, I would say there's one or two mysteries in my life, and why he did that is completely beyond me. Did he care about you a lot at one point? I was like the apple of his eye when, when I was a kid. I worshipped him, and he, he worshipped me. And When did that change? The moment they got divorced. So my parents are divorced. I'm nine years old. It's our first Christmas with dad. It's just me and dad and the Christmas tree, right? My father hands me this erector set. It's a giant erector set. It's so big. The kid is almost as as large as a piece of luggage. (laughs) We open this thing up and my father's eyes just like light up. I think this was the kind of gift he wished he could have gotten when he was my age. Because this man is a brilliant engineer. Mm-hmm. He, he was so good. He designed cranes for Cape Canaveral and applications to get spent nuclear rods out of a reactor. He was like a genius. He's, he's no small-time guy. Like He's renowned he around the country. He is the top of his field. Okay. All right. So he wants me to build an electric drawbridge that goes up and down up and down me i'm thinking more in terms of like page one but this is like (laughs) this is like something he that would interest him yeah so he watches me for about 10 minutes and this look of horror comes over his face i i don't have the a clue where to start you know i was a good academically but i don't have any skill at mechanics. Mm -hmm. And this is the first time my father ever realized that this was like actually a weakness of mine where it was his strength. Mm -hmm. And he gave me this horrible look. Are you really my son? You know, I mean, I don't know what the genetics is. This is like Christmas morning. You like you're by the Christmas tree, you're opening a gift. And he is so disappointed in me. He, he pulls the tools out of my hands and begins to build the thing himself. It takes him (laughs) three and a half hours, which should tell you something. If a genius engineer, it takes three and a half hours to put it together. 
what would it take me? A nine-year-old and here's kid? here's the deal. Here's the amazing thing. He didn't even look at the instructions. He just did it. He took one look at the picture and started building. But here's what happened. He was like so disappointed in me, he didn't call me for three months. And you'd been having weekly visits with him since? Oh, absolutely. He, it was like clockwork. And suddenly he stopped seeing me. I am convinced he doesn't want to see me because he's so disappointed in me because I failed him. I am going around. Well, I, I, I get out the erector set and I do everything that is within my powers. I'm not very good, but I try. Yeah. I try really, really hard. But he never comes around to see it. No. No, I mean, he never even calls. So I'm completely in the dark. I figure he's just like disgusted with me. So four months go by after Christmas, and he calls and says, well, let's get together. And he picks me up, and I have my giant erector set with me, and I'm about to show him what I can do. And he says, oh, leave that at home. You won't need that. Hmm. Well, (laughs) I'm completely deflated. I go to his apartment, and I meet his girlfriend. Who is the woman that he was... Who's the woman who broke up my parents' marriage? Because these two were cheating. uh... Right, because they were cheating. And he turns on the TV and lets me watch TV while he goes in the bedroom with his girlfriend. No. (laughs) I swear to God. And I guess she was just uh, better with erector sets than I was because... uh, (laughs) Because he barely paid a bit of attention to me. Wow. Okay, so that means he's definitely out of the picture as far as money. And he won't even help me get a scholarship. And he won't, he won't even fill out a, a damn form. So I had one chance. I had one chance. There was something called the Jones Scholarship. Well, this scholarship goes to the neediest student with the best grades. Okay. Well, on both both accounts I'm a shoe in. Yeah. I'm the poorest kid who's ever gone to this rich kid's school. And I'm fourth or fifth in my class academically. I'm I'm a good student. It's a shoe in. Yeah. So my entire existence is revolved around getting the scholarship. Okay. And now what is your what is your home life uh like at this point? So my mother bought this house that she can't afford. One day I come home and there are these two young ladies from Mexico. One's uh, 19, one's 20, and they're knockout good looking. And my mother puts them in the room upstairs next to mine. So one's on one side and one's on the other, and I'm in the middle, and they're my age. They immediately started flirting with me. Mm -hmm. But there's one huge problem. They don't speak a word of English. And we've established that you don't speak Spanish uh, no, I am the best German student in the school. So but you that's could not talk good. to them in German. That's <laughs> right. But uh, I certainly couldn't take them to the prom. I certainly couldn't take them to a St. John's football game. And these women were guests in my home. So how did this affect uh, affect you at the time as far as like you're going to school and working all the, all this? Oh, well, I wish you hadn't asked that question because I did not get a bit of work done. (laughs) And it didn't help that this um, house we lived in was right across the street from a Jehovah's Witness church. Okay. So I had all this organ music blasting 
in my room, and I had these two beautiful girls who made it clear that I had green light, and I had my conscience holding me back, and I had my hormones screaming for action, and, and I was a mess. And meanwhile, you're like, I've got to figure out a way to get into college. And meanwhile, I've got to get the grades to get into college. I was a mess. So one day I came home and found out they were both, were, they had both gotten jobs as waitresses near in a bar nearby. Mm -hmm. About three days later, maybe four days later, they started, they had boyfriends and they actually bring, brought them up to their rooms here at our house. Okay. And the next thing I know, I'm listening to them having sex in stereo, one in one room, one in the other, moan on right and moan on left. <laughs> oh, God. And I am just tearing my hair out with it. So you're listening, to the, you've got the noise of these women having sex, your hormones are raging, there's an or a huge loud organ across the street at a, at a church, you're trying- I can't study. You've got, you've got, and you've got to study because you've got to get this scholarship and you've got to do a good job in order to get the scholarship. And you've been ostracized because of your, uh, your, your acne and various things. So there's a lot of challenges right here. But you've you've got this uh, job at the grocery store that has helped to start to turn things around for you. How is that going? There's a new manager there who cannot stand me because I, I have a smart mouth and I talk back every time he tells me to do something. So he put me on probation. He said if I made one more mistake, if I said one thing crosswise, I would lose that job. So, I mean... I, I don't have any place to turn. So a lot, of, a lot of people at this point might try and fix things in ways that, or try and make things better in ways that would actually hurt things. So what do you, what, what do you, what are your brilliant plans or what plans or what do you do at this point? I, I actually start to lose control. I, I mean, I do crazy things. There's an incident at my home. I cannot, and I can't study for my German test. I am just in a rage. So the next day I call the school and say I'm sick because, I mean, I don't want to flunk my German test, right? Uh -huh. So now it's Tuesday. I go to school, and as I expected, my teacher says, um, well, it's time. For, you need to make up the German test. Why don't you go do it in the classroom? Well, I'm in a, alone in a room. It's late in the afternoon, and it's a remote classroom. And so about 40 minutes pass, and I do 90% of the test because I'm a, I've, I've studied for it. And now I decide I'm going to just look in the book for the last 10%. Uh -huh. Why? Well, that's, it's a dumb reason. We were studying German literature, and we were supposed to remember the names and top works of famous German authors. And I thought this was wrong. I was taking German to learn a language, and now I was being forced to do German literature. So because I was an elite student, I gave myself permission to cheat on 10% of the <laughs> test. <laughs> Which I've heard is a rule. You can, if you're elite, you can do that. All right. Well, I was, yes, I, because I was mad at the world. Okay. So here is 10 points on a test of 100 that I'm cheating on. And here's the funny thing. I knew half the answers anyway because I had studied the, you know, because I had read the chapter. <laughs> so you had no need to, to cheat. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. The moment I opened my German book, 
a boy barges in the class. 45 minutes I've been in that room. The moment I open that book, this guy runs in. It turned out that this boy had forgotten his German book Hmm. earlier in the day, and he needed to do his homework. And at first he apologized, but then he saw the book open, and he saw my face turn red, and the kid knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was cheating. So what is the consequence of being caught cheating at at St. John's School? Well, the consequence should be suspension. There's no question about it. We had an honor code, and it was uh, enforced. I'd seen it enforced many times during my nine years. So I assumed I would be suspended if the kid turned me in. So the next day, I'm walking to class, and the president of the student body pulls me over, asks me if he could speak to me in private. He says, there's been a, a report of, of indiscretion regarding your German test. But I, I want to tell you something. There's, a great, there's great respect for your German ability. And it's fairly clear that you were not cheating, that there's been a misunderstanding there, because no one of your ability would dream of cheating on a German test. <laughs> but I just needed to like let you know what was going on. Nice. It was very classy. And he walked away. <laughs> no one of your ability would ever dream of cheating on a German test. And he walked away. It's a very unique way of approaching it. Very classy. It's a fascinating way of approaching it. I was given a wrist slap and a strange one at that. It was in the form of a sugar-coated compliment. Here's the deal. It had to be Mr. Sauls. Mr. Sauls had decided to give me a pass. He's the headmaster. He definitely would have heard about it. Oh, absolutely. He would have been the one to make the final decision. Here's what I didn't know. This would have horrible consequences on me. Well, let's yeah, let's go back to see so the scholarship that was like your one shot at getting to My college. My one shot at college next year, correct. Do you get it? Well, so I pick up the Houston Post. I guess it's like early March. The announcements have been made. So I race to the back page. I go to St. John's, and a girl named Katina Ballantyne has won the award. I fall completely to pieces. And I, and I start, begin to obsess about Katina Ballantyne. She was the, there was one family at my school that was like the most famous family of all. It was the Ballantyne family. There were seven children. And every one of them was like superior academically and athletically, and they had the total respect of their peers. And the reason for that was that their mother was brilliant. Maria Ballantyne was this socialite of the highest degree. She was the one that all the women buzzed around. And I've been watching this woman for nine years because I wished my own mother could be like her instead of the one I, I was stuck with. So if anyone had to win the award besides me, that would have been fine. But there's one problem. Katina lived in River Oaks, the wealthiest section of the, of the city. And her father was a famous doctor. And she, she, their parents were wealthy enough to send seven kids to St. John's. How in the world did this rich girl get this scholarship over me? Well, there could be only one explanation. 
her mother had pulled strings. You know, she was the most influential woman in the whole school, Maria Ballantyne. Why would she even do that if she's, you've got someone who's wealthy? The answer was clear to me. She did it as a, as a prestige thing. Okay, so now it's, now it's clear that you're, you don't have the money to go to college. Not only that, my hero has turned into my worst enemy. I am crazed with anger and bitterness and pity and depression. Well, I would imagine that the results would come in soon about whether or not you were accepted to the three colleges oh, you applied to. Oh, I, I was accepted, but what difference did it make? Okay, I was where? accepted at both Hopkins and Georgetown. Okay, but it didn't. What difference did it make? They were six thousand a year. I, I had three thousand, and the scholarship was ripped ripped away from me. What am I going to do? I spend the next four or five days hating Mrs. Ballantyne with every bone in my body. I suddenly wise up that Mrs. Ballantyne could not have accomplished this without Mr. Sauls. And so I'm, I'm at a loss. Mr. Sauls, of all the people in the world, he knows how poor I am. So you felt that he did this because he knew you had cheated on your German test. Right. He gave it to Katina because I was not worthy of this scholarship. That's when I'm starting to think about looking for the nearest bridge. I am gone. I am in the abyss. When you say that, did you, uh, are you saying you were at the point, did you consider committing suicide? I, I probably would have if one more thing had gone wrong. You know, I was, I was, I was barely, I was barely alive. There must be a turning point. Yeah. What, what is the turning point? So I go to my grocery store job a week after losing the scholarship to Katina Ballantyne. When in walks into my grocery store, Mrs. Ballantyne walks in. The woman who's stolen my scholarship from me. Has she ever been there before? Never. I've been there two and a half years. Not once have I ever seen this woman in my store. Furthermore, I know where she lives. I do that because I drove by her house one day to see just how big their Katina Ballantyne's house was. Mrs. Ballantyne <laughs> doesn't live anywhere near this grocery store. And plus, there's like three grocery stores within walking distance of where she lives. This one, this, furthermore, there are rich people grocery stores and there are middle class grocery stores. I live in a, I work in a middle class grocery store. In other words, for her to walk in my store, she's slumming. <laughs> so then what happens? Well, I assume she's here to apologize. <laughs> Only one problem. She walks right past me. She has no idea who I am. So I follow her. I follow her through the store. <laughs> you start following her around the grocery store. Uh, up and down the aisles. She squeezes the tomatoes and she weighs the cantaloupe. So what happens next? So I, I take her groceries to the car, put the groceries in the trunk, close the trunk, and I'm about to leave when she says, um, young man, could, could you stop for a second? Do you by some chance go to St. John's? And I, I mean, my heart skips a beat. I said, um, uh, yes, ma'am, I do go to St. John's. So she starts to play like, uh, what's my line? You know, the old game show. She says, um, what is your name? Rick. How long have you worked here at the store? Uh, two years, ma'am. Really? How often do you work? And I say four days a week, three afternoons plus Saturdays. 
And she's starting to like get this real puzzled look on her face. And she says, and you've been doing this for two years? Doesn't this interfere with your studies? And I say, yes. She says, well, why do you work here? So I tell her mother, money is tight about tight at home. And I've been worried about finding a way to pay for college. And this job is my only hope. And she says, well, Rick, if money is so tight at home, how on earth do your parents send you to a rich kid's school, an expensive school? So I tell her how Mr. Chidsey has gotten me these scholarships, how my father's abandoned me, how my mother can't even afford the house she lives in. And her, you know, her eyes bulge. And, and meanwhile, I'm falling to pieces. This woman is paying attention to me like she really cares about me. And mind you, I've, I mean, it's been ages since either parent has shown any pride in me whatsoever. It almost feels like having a moment of having a mother. Right. Thank you. Well put. And then she says, "Um, so you work here for money for college. Where do you want to go to college? Suddenly I'm reminded this is the woman who may have had a role in depriving me of college next year. And I say, well, ma'am, I'm interested in Georgetown, but I'm having trouble figuring out how to pay for it. What I wanted to say was, and if you and Mr. Sauls hadn't stolen my scholarship, I might have a chance. But here's the deal. It's not very endearing. I was falling, I was falling in love with this woman. I mean, she was so darn kind to me, I wanted her to stick around. The next thing she said was, you know, Rick, you would be surprised to know your story reminds me of my own childhood. Now I was shocked. This is the most important woman at my entire school. And she just said, my childhood reminds her of her own childhood. So did she explain what she meant? Well, that's the crazy thing. She began to tell me her life story. Her father was born in Greece. Her father didn't have any education at all. He was a shepherd. One day he hopped an ocean liner, you know, kind of smuggled on board and got himself over to Rikers Island or Ellis Island or wherever it is people enter the United States. Mm -hmm. They let him in, and he got a job as a railroad worker. And he ended up in Arkansas, uh, you know, laying down railroad ties. And one day it was time for him to get paid, and the guy couldn't pronounce his name or spell it. So the guy says, I'll tell you what, I'm just going to name you after me. So this, this guy who's like, Stavros, Kostanopoulos, whatever. He's now Mike Mitchell. (laughs) 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 So he's, he's, but he still can barely speak English and he still has no education. He makes his way down to Houston, Texas, and he begins to shine shoes. Well, he's a hard worker and he eventually uh, moves down to Galveston and puts, talks somebody into, putting him up like with a shoe shine shop and a you know a shirt cleaning shop. One day he looks in a Greek newspaper and sees this beauty queen from Florida. She's like been voted Miss Miss Greece Miami whatever. <laughs> and he falls in love. So Mike Mitchell gets on the train, goes 1500 miles to Miami, finds out the girl's engaged. And he says <laughs> I've got this huge business back in Houston. Well, I mean, he's a good-looking guy. He's big and strong, and he's confident. 
And the other, the the marriage, the fiance, it's an arranged marriage, you know. And so here's a guy who's really interested in her, and he's wealthy beyond imagination. And so the girl, the young girl, says yes. So they go back to uh, Galveston, Texas. The next thing you know, he's got this little dinky clothes cleaning shop, and they and he lives upstairs. <laughs> she was. But, she know, was a surprise what? for any any. Yeah, surprise, surprise. But you know. Miami is a long way away, and so she decides to make the best of it, and they have four children. <laughs> so she's a bride, and she's here in Galveston. They have four children, and tragedy hits. Mrs. Ballantyne, you know, we'll call her Maria at this point, is 11 years old. She's the youngest kid, and her mother has this heart attack and dies. Just and the woman's not that old. She's like maybe 35, if that age, you know, maybe 40. But suddenly her mother dies and her father, he says, uh, I can't raise these children. So he tells the two oldest boys, they're like 17 or 18. And he says, get out of the house. That leaves Maria and George, who's 13, two years older. He doesn't even take care of them. He sends George to like, one of his mother's brothers, he sends Maria to his his wife's sister, and then he just starts chasing girls and gambling. He's a hell of a guy. Oh, he's a winner. Kind of like my dad. <laughs> well, the next thing you know, this Maria is 11 years old. She's living with an aunt who doesn't love her, who has children of her own, doesn't want her. Maria is an orphan at 11. Her best friend in the world is George. He lives on the other side of Galveston, and they don't see each other. Mm -hmm. Well, she cries herself to sleep every night for months until one day George shows up. He has managed to get a bicycle. The next thing you know, he comes to visit her every day, and he takes care of her. And so if it wasn't for George, gosh, only knows what would have happened to her. Yeah. So she's living in this in this uh, restaurant. It turns out it's run by the mobsters. The Galveston Godfather is a guy named Sam Massio. Huh. He's like the most influential guy in the city. Wow. He's best friends with the Godfather of uh, of uh, New Orleans. Okay. But he's not a killer. A bone breaker. He's yeah, maybe he breaks bones, but he's he's more like a businessman. He makes friends with the most influential uh, businessman in Galveston, and he opens up bars. Okay, but he opens them up right next door to hotels. So you know the hotels are making money, and this is in the days when of prohibition. So this guy is uh, Sam Massio. He's uh, raking in the dough. He has gambling joints. He has. Uh, booze and he has prostitution at a time <laughs> the three when big money makers right the when when all this stuff is illegal but he pays the police of galveston to leave him alone they're on his payroll so he doesn't need violence he's just got these kind of underground activities that well, he, he, he uses his political connections to put his opponents away he does it through politics sort of like never mind <laughs> sort of like <laughs> Yeah, so my point is this guy befriends young Maria Ballantyne because it turns out this restaurant her aunt runs is his favorite place to have breakfast. 
So he makes friends with the little girl. I mean, she's living in a strange environment. I mean, this place is, has a secret gambling casino. This place has prostitutes. <laughs> this place is visited by mobsters every day of the week. And now the, the most powerful man in the city has taken an interest in her. <laughs> Quite a place for a little girl to grow up. All right. It's wonderful. Well, one day he calls her over and they talk and he likes this girl and he hands her a dollar. Well, she hands him the dollar back and he's surprised. And he says, why did you give me the dollar back? And he says, because I like talking to you, but I don't want you to think I come over for your money. I just like to talk to you. Well, I'm telling you what, the guy just starts smiling. You know, it's like the girl has class, you know, yeah. she has like a dignity about her that he didn't see in very many. And here's the deal. The man is very interested in any child who's an immigrant because, you know, immigrant children don't have it easy. Sure. And he too is an immigrant. So he takes a real shine to the girl. Well, at any rate, at one point, her best friend in the world, George, has graduated from high school and, and goes up to Texas A&M. And you've got to hear this story because it's pretty wonderful. Her parents really don't like San Antonio. I mean, uh, Galveston anymore. Not a, I, I, the, the I didn't say that right. Her, her really. aunt and uncle, the ones who take care of her, they, they moved to San Antonio. Well, the next thing you know, she's forbidden to date. So here she is, a junior in high school. She's at a new school, a new city. She has no friends, and her parent and her guardians won't let her date. Okay. Well, she goes out of her mind. She has two things to do. She plays a lot of tennis, <laughs> and she does a lot of studying, and she does a lot of feeling sorry for herself. And it doesn't look like she's going to college because, you know, in those days, the 30s, uh, girls didn't have a lot of value. So she doesn't even know why she's studying. Meanwhile, George is in trouble. He has no money up at, a at Texas A&M. He has done every odd job in the book. You know, he sells gift cards, he builds furniture, he waits tables. But AM has a very tough policy. You got two weeks to be overdue, and if you don't pay your tuition, it's month to month. If you don't ah. pay your tuition, you're gone. One day in his junior year of college, it's over for George. He needs 40 bucks and he has no way to get it. He does the one thing he swore he would never do. He wires his father, Dad, please send me money. His father wires back that he doesn't, he's tapped out right now. He, the cards haven't been going very well. He doesn't have a cent to his name. So it looks pretty hopeless for George. He's at a dead end. Miraculously, about three days later, a check for $50 shows up from his father. Well, it turns out that his father went to Sam Massio, the godfather, and he said, Godfather, my son, he's a good student, but it looks like he can't pay for the next month's tuition. Can you help him out? Well, Massio, no questions asked, pulls out his billfold and hands the uh, father a $100 bill. Well, the father, he's a, he's a street guy, right? He takes the money to a bank, breaks it in half, keeps 50, sends 50 to his son. It's some horrible parents. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Well, it's a good story. I'm telling you, and it gets even better. So at any rate, George has gotten a gift from heaven. 
as far as he's concerned. He gets a chance to stay at AM. Meanwhile, Sam Massio is curious. He remembers the little girl, George's sister, and now the father has said that he's a top student at Texas A&M. Well, that's ridiculous. The son of a guy who can't even read and write is a top student at Texas A&M. So Massio decides to see whether the guy is lying or not, and he checks on George Mitchell. He's astounded. This George is the top engineering student in his class. Nice. Sam Massio, the godfather, is incredulous. How is it possible that this kid from this broken home with this deadbeat father has done so well? Well, obviously, the kid is a hard worker. He has a heart of, you know, of a lion. Sometimes the apple does fall far from the tree. Far, far, far from the tree. Massio decides he's going to, like, fund the kid. He starts sending him money. And George Mitchell has no idea why this man is sending him money. But so he finally breaks down and asks his father what's going on. His father says, well, I didn't know you were getting money, but, you know, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Well, meanwhile, Maria in San Antonio has graduated from high school and she is going to go to secretarial school. When suddenly she receives a letter from her brother with money to go to Mary Hardin Simmons, like next to Baylor University here in Texas. Her brother is paying her way to college. Nice. Well, Maria's thrilled, but she knows that there's something wrong here. (laughs) She knows that two years ago, her brother almost got thrown out of college for his inability. So now he has enough money to pay for her too? (laughs) So she's suspicious as hell. So the next time her brother visits in San Antonio, she pulls George aside and says, George, tell me the truth, or I'm, gonna, I'm not going to college. I'm just going to find the next boy I find, and I'm going to get pregnant <laughs> if you don't tell <laughs> me the, the truth. Well, well, George took her seriously. He broke down and confessed that this guy in Galveston, Sam Massio, had offered to pay her way to college. She suddenly had been given a four-year scholarship to college by the number one gangster in the state of Texas. (laughs) Well, you talk about money out of nowhere. I mean, it was like the great miracle of her life. And she looked at me and she said, can you imagine that, Rick? Through this man's simple act of kindness, a poor little Greek girl gets to go to college. I have never been able to forget that gesture. And what's even more amazing, he did the same thing for my brother, George. Yeah. You know, it's an incredible gift. And it changed the direction of my life. And now she turned around and she said, you know what? I've told you this story for a reason, because you remind me of my own childhood. If it wasn't for lucky breaks, I would be waiting tables in a Greek restaurant right now or taking dictation. You sack groceries? Well, guess what? I I washed dishes when I was your age. But I made it out of there. And I think if I can overcome adversity, I I think you can too. In fact, it looks to me like you're well on your way. And I'm sorry if I choke up a little bit here. No, it's fine. But she said that she had never heard of a student working a full-time job after school. You know, she says, St. John's students have every privilege imaginable, so I never expected 
to see a young man like you at St. John's earning money for college. And I see things are tough for you now, but I want you to hang in there. You have too much going for you to stop now. Well, <laughs> she, ele- I mean, she literally elevated me out of the quicksand. You know, I was being sucked down in a horrible spiral. I was falling into the abyss, and this woman's words just lifted me right out of the pit I was in. Yeah. I was pretty naive, but I kind of understood that the reason she excelled was that she had come from nothing and that she had these like this incredible sense of work ethic and values and and she respected everybody. She like had climbed to the top and I thought, you know, I could do the same thing someday. You know, I'm outclassed and girls don't know exist and the boys make fun of me and ignore me. But if she if this woman could do what she did, why can't I? So at any rate, she asked me a lot of questions about myself and something weird happened to me. I was telling her all these secrets about myself, about how my blind eye kept me out of sports and how my acne kept me from dating and how lonely I was. And I was telling her stuff I'd never even told my own mother. But really, some of it you may not have gotten the chance to talk about with anyone. No, I was about to cry. <laughs> I mean, it's like to have this woman pay, you know, care about me like this. I am teetering on the edge of completely breaking down when guess what she said? She says, by the way, Rick, did you know my daughter Katina just won the Jones Scholarship? <laughs> if she had slapped me in the face, it could not have hurt. <laughs> it could not have hit me harder. So you you had been like, oh, she, you know, here's this wonderful woman, and who I admire, and she's telling me to keep going, and now she's rubbing into my face the fact that her wealthy family, her daughter, got this scholarship that could have helped you go to college. I was about to like yell at her. And then I just like, I suddenly like, I just shut down. I did not want to hurt her. I just wanted to listen. I couldn't even speak. And so she explained to it to me, Chad, she explained to me the whole story. Every one of her children were on scholarship. She said the only reason her kids even went to this school, the only reason they had a home in the River Oaks was her brother, George, helped her out. She said, my husband is a doctor, but he's also a professor in the University of Texas system. He's on a fixed salary. He's not allowed to work side jobs. He's paid well, but it's a fixed salary. I could never afford to send our children to St. John's without the fact that they're all on scholarship and my brother George also helps pay. In other words, even rich people have budgets. Even rich people have limits to the amount of money they have. Probably a revelation to you at that point. (laughs) It was a shock. She said, the reason Katina got this scholarship is that my husband makes so much money that the people at Vanderbilt say that she doesn't deserve uh, a scholarship. And I scream at them. She says, all my children are on scholarship. I mean, I can't afford to pay the full tuition for seven different children. There's no way my daughter can go to Vanderbilt if you don't help her. 
So I told this to Mr. Sauls, and he says, well, I think I can help. I'm going to give her the Jones Scholarship. And I'm listening to this, and one part of me is bitter, but the other part of me suddenly sees that this is not, you know, the rich getting richer. And I looked at it this way. My grades were a little bit better, but Katina was the captain of the field hockey team. She was head prefect. She was in the Music Man play. She did was editor of the yearbook. As leadership goes, there was no woman finer than Katina Ballantyne. So if anyone deserved the scholarship, she, she deserved it as well. Do you follow me? I forgave everybody. Absolutely. It's a it's tough break that I didn't get it, but I didn't care anymore. I was just grateful that Mrs. Ballantyne had explained it to me. And so she looks at me and she says, I wouldn't worry about money. I have a feeling that things are going to work out for you. And and uh, she didn't explain what she meant by that, but she just, she patted me on the shoulder and she says, things are going to work out. Your combination of great grades and need or don't worry, any good school in the country will take care of you. Well, we've been talking for 45 minutes and with that, uh, she left. I would imagine your boss was wondering where you were. <laughs> Well, that's the funny thing. Thank God. It was like a huge break. She, um, you know, it was a slow day and he, and the assistant manager was on, on duty that day. So, you know, they were used to kids going in and out. So no one actually even noticed me being gone. Nice. That's 45 minutes. Not, not, not a word. So you had this experience that brought you out of your funk. What happened? What happened next? I guess about two weeks passed after Mrs. Ballantyne, and I didn't see her again. That was kind of weird because I usually like saw her in the hallways about two, three times a week. But she's vanished. But anyway, two weeks passed, and I'm in study hall, and the voice comes out over the loudspeaker system. Richard Archer, report to the headmaster's office immediately. I was panic stricken. I figured they'd decided to talk to me about the German test because that was only a, a month in the rearview mirror. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't know if there was a statue of limitations or not. <laughs> Cheating. So I was uh, very tense. The secretary said, you may go right in. Mr. Sauls uh, knew I was there, but didn't even look up. He just continued to read something on his desk and spoke to me, and he's, which I thought was kind of, kind of rude in a way. <laughs> Sounds intimidating. Yes, in a very abrupt voice, he says, uh, Mr. Archer, good morning, please sit down. But I, 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 I didn't sit there. I sat on the edge of the chair. So about four minutes passed, and Mr. Sauls looked up, and there were no pleasantries. He was all business. He just stared at me. And then he said, Mr. Archer, I understand that you've been accepted at Johns Hopkins University. Is this correct? Ah, I'm not in trouble. Uh, yes, sir, I've been accepted at Johns Hopkins. Mr. Sauls didn't say a word. He just, like, stared at me. <laughs> now, you, you remember, like, Star Trek, where Mr. Spock could do the Martian mind probe. Well, Mr. Sauls was doing something similar. He was, like, staring into my soul. I'm almost certain he was thinking about that cheating episode. Sure. He was either angry at me or 
least disappointed, but he decided to continue. Very well, young man. In that case, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to call an old friend of mine, Mr. Ralph O'Connor. Mr. O'Connor is the Houston area representative for Johns Hopkins, and he would like to meet with you so he can tell you more about the school. So Mr. Sauls handed me a card with Mr. O'Connor's business address on it or business phone, and that was it. Our talk lasted two minutes. So two nights later, I I drove to Mr. O'Connor's home here in River Oaks. It was enormous. I mean, the Palace of Versailles wasn't much longer than, much larger <laughs> than this mansion. It was just palatial. So I drive up to Versailles, and Mr. O'Connor is very nice to me. We takes me into the living room and offers me coffee, and we sip the coffee, and he makes me feel at ease. He tells me about Hopkins. And, uh, yeah, he has nice things to say about the place. And all I could think of is what a shame there are no girls there. <laughs> but that's all that's I could I think about. Too. I think anyone, any young man would think that. He talked about the medical school and lacrosse and academic excellence and a beautiful wooded campus. And then he hesitated. And I said, well, Mr. O'Connor, you've really sold me on this school. It sounds like a, a, a good, a nice place to go. But, you know, I was just being polite. So Mr. O'Connor switched topics on me. He says, Rick, could you take a moment to clarify your home situation? And I gave him a five-minute summary. And then I just shut up. And Mr. O'Connor nodded. He he took my word for everything at face value. No more questions. He, he rose from the couch and thanked me for coming and said he'd be in touch. Well, a week passed, and I came home, and there was a, a letter in the mailbox from Johns Hopkins. They had given me a $16,000 scholarship. How'd you feel? Cloud nine. This was it. A dream come true. I had a full scholarship to Johns Hopkins, four years. And it crossed my mind, my scholarship was four times larger than Katina Ballantyne's. So I kind of yeah. gloated. <laughs> you know, I kind of gloated. Well, oh, I didn't get the Jones, but I'll, I'll, you know, this is pretty good. It sounds like Mr. Sauls knew he could take care of you both. Well, that's the point. Mr. Sauls never crossed my mind. I gave Mr. O'Connor all the credit. Here's what went through my... <laughs> She's very my, naive. <laughs> well, let me just tell you what went through my limited childhood mind, teenager mind. I figured... Mr. O'Connor was looking to do some good. So he calls up Mr. Sauls and he says, do you have any kids who need a scholarship? <laughs> and Mr. Sauls thought of me and he knew I needed a scholarship, but I didn't deserve one. But he didn't have anyone else to give it to. Gotcha. I figured it was a consolation prize. You know, that's what they do all the time. People are just like, hey, you, you know anyone who needs but like 16 grand? I was a teenager. <laughs> I, you know, I was a, you know, teenagers are stupid. We all know that. <laughs> I thought, true. I thought I got lucky. When I was at Hopkins, I ran into three other boys from St. John's. And it took me till I was age 60. It occurred to me that Mr. Sauls and Ralph O'Connor had a gentleman's agreement to send one boy per year 
to Johns Hopkins on an all-expenses-paid scholarship mm-hmm. funded by Ralph O'Connor. That's why Mr. Sauls had pushed Johns Hopkins University back in September. Well, clearly. He had, he had, well, clearly, exactly. He had this scholarship lined up for me last summer, but he never told me. I went through all this anger, <laughs> you know, all this anxiety. I almost committed suicide over not going to college when. It was in the bag last summer. It was like the most ridiculous. And, and you know, it's entirely possible when Miss Ballantyne was telling you not to worry that she already, like he had mentioned it to her because she could have been she like. She may, they were best friends. She may already have known, but she wasn't at liberty to tell me. So you got the scholarship and everything and you graduate and, uh, but there's prom. Yeah, well, that's how to forget it. I've never had a date in high school, in four years of high school. It's out of the question, right? You didn't even have friends, let alone a date. Just out of the question. So one week after I graduate, I go to a uh, rock concert. You know, Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker, Jack Bruce. Cream is the number one rock band in the world. And then there's Vanilla Fudge, warm-up act. (laughs) <laughs> I go by myself. It sounds it sounds like something it's on a menu. There's cream with vanilla fudge and uh... Yeah, good point. Yeah. I'm sure popsicle should have been on the <laughs> on the card. But at any rate, I go by myself because I don't have a friend in the world and I you know, what's the point of paying for two tickets? So I walk in and there's an empty seat and it has to be mine. And next to this empty seat is the most beautiful girl I have ever seen in my life, a goddess, a teen goddess. And she's sitting right next to me. And I look to see where her boyfriend is, and she doesn't have one. Right next to her is a girlfriend who's passed out, probably from drugs. Mm -hmm. This girl is by herself, and she has no one to talk to but me. And here's what's really cool about it. It's dark in there. It's dark in there. So she and she can't see your face? <laughs> she cannot see how bad the scarring is on my face. So I'm released from that I'm released from that curse. You didn't need the paper bag that you had used when you I were younger. I didn't have to have the paper bag anymore. And furthermore, she did not know that I was the biggest loser in the history of my high school. I had a clean slate with this girl, and she had no one to talk to. So what happened? So I introduced myself, and I started to talk to her. And uh, she said, you go to St. John's? Wow, that's a really good school. Boy, you must be really smart. Wow. I'm like, holy smokes. And she's very animated. I mean, the girl just can't sit still. Obviously, she's on something, but I'm I'm new to drugs, so I wasn't quite sure what was going on here. All I know <laughs> is she was really friendly. And, you know, she was beating on these imaginary drums and her hair. You know, she had this long, beautiful hair that went down to her waist. It kept getting in her face. And one time I kind of just brushed it aside, like pulling a curtain apart so I could see how pretty she was. Nice. And she grinned at me. You know, it's like. It's like in a movie. I mean, I'm having a blast. This is the first girl of her magnitude I've ever spoken to in my life. And I'm doing good. I'm handling myself. I mean, I can talk. I'm just too intimidated by the girls at my school. Sure. 
Well, at any rate, now the rock concert begins and the lights go out. It's pitch black in there except for up on the stage. And I'm depressed because that's the end of it. No more conversation. Suddenly, this girl grabs my left thigh. Whoa, I grab her thigh, but it's even better because she's wearing a dress. And I mean, electric, you know, an electric bolt. Just, I mean, I am just like in shock. I have never touched a girl before in my entire life. <laughs> and uh, I like it. You know, I'm pretty darn happy. And the next thing I know, Cheryl stands up and jumps in my lap. I, I didn't invite her. <laughs> I didn't invite her. But I was more than well, you know, happy to welcome her. So we're, we begin kissing. This is your first kiss ever. Oh, I may have kissed some teenage girl in an accidental hayride once, but that's it. What? In an accidental hayride? Oh, when I was 13, I was on a hayride and some girl in the dark came over and smooched with me. That was before the acne. Huh. Interesting. But this was my first real kiss. Okay. So, um... Uh, my hands, you know, are given permission to go pretty much wherever they wanted to go. And uh, I don't, it was probably a great concert, but I didn't pay a bit of attention. We must have kissed for an hour and a half. It was awesome. So the, the show's over. And I asked Cheryl, do you, do you need help with your girlfriend? Who's like, you know, still out of it. And she says, well, I think she's alive. So yeah, we probably should carry her to the car. So while I'm carrying this girl to the car, I say, hey, Cheryl, would you like to go to uh, my prom with me? She says, when is it? And I said, well, it's tomorrow night. She says, yeah, that sounds great. You know, I'd love to go. So she writes out her phone number and her address, and she says, uh, call me, and, we'll, and, and uh, we'll go tomorrow. I'm in shock. This is a stunning, stunningly beautiful girl who probably could make money at modeling if she chose to, why isn't she going to her own prom? Or why hasn't somebody else asked her to a prom? Do you follow me? Yeah. Every school in the city is having a prom, and this stunning beauty is free at a moment's notice. You must have felt like you won the lottery. I won the lottery, but I was also kind of feeling suspicious because like <laughs> he thought maybe it was a practical joke or something no it wasn't that i i knew this was for real but there was some really strange stuff going on in my life stuff that didn't really add up if you use the laws of probability but i wasn't going to argue the girl said yes i was going to pick her up and the next thing you know i walk in with virtually the best looking girl at the entire party. Yeah. And, but there was a problem. I couldn't dance. I'd never danced in my life. Mm -hmm. But Cheryl had a solution. She had brought some marijuana along. <laughs> well, It's a simple solution. The, practical. Very simple solution. <laughs> you know, there's an old saying, dance like no one's looking. Well, I couldn't have cared less. I just, <laughs> I just threw my arms any direction they wanted to go. And I stayed out there all night. And the looks on the faces of my classmates were precious. They were baffled. They had never seen me with a, I mean, for all they knew, I was gay, which is not the worst thing in the world, but I was <laughs> very heterosexual. I was, and here I was showing up with the most beautiful girl in the world. 
they were like flabbergasted. Is every lonely nerd like fantasy right, come right, true? Right, right. It's like, it, well, here's the deal. If you had seen this in a movie, you know, like they have movies about how you pay some girl to go to a party with you. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that's what they thought, but they knew I was poor. How could I for a girl of this magnitude? <laughs> so um, they they were clearly impressed and the guys just kept coming over hoping for an introduction. But here's what's funny about it. Cheryl was re- unbelievably loyal. I think she caught on that I had an odd status. But rather than side with the majority, she kind of like came to my side. You know what I'm saying? She like supported me in whatever I was doing. She refused to like flirt with the other guys. She refused to smile at the other guys. So I would imagine like at this point, you're like, well, maybe, maybe I'm going to get late tonight. (laughs) I didn't think that. (laughs) I kind of wondered. I kind of wonder, but no, 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 I, I wasn't that bold. I was, but okay. I was looking forward to smooching some more. The, that's for sure. Yeah. And, but she said, I, you know, let's go out in the um, garden. So we went out in the garden and smoked some more marijuana, but I didn't smoke it because I figured I'd have to drive later on. So she smoked it and she immediately passed out. Now, what do I do? I have this comatose girl on my shoulder. And the party is over and people are starting to leave. So I And your party is I over. Figure, my party's over. So I take her to my car before anyone can see her, <laughs> you know. And we sit there for a while and she doesn't she's gone. She's totally unconscious. Totally unconscious. So tough luck for me. But you know what? I was pretty philosophical about it. I got what I'd asked for. I wanted to go to that prom with a date that would impress people. And son of a gun, that was a wish that had come true. So it was kind of like, in a way, like, yeah, I didn't ask for anything more. I Maybe I should have, but I got what I asked for. So I took her home, and now I had to face the music. Her parents, <laughs> her parents opened the door, and she see, and they see that this girl can't even stand up. And so they're probably you know, like, what, I, "What did you do to her?" Right? What did I do to her? I tried to carry her in, but her father seized her from me and and carried her and put her on the nearby couch and then returned to give me the third, you know, the third degree. And uh, they asked some pretty tough questions, but (laughs) I was, I was, I talked my way out of it. I am, for one thing, it was 15 minutes after midnight, meaning there wasn't much time midnight. And I clearly had brought her straight home. Furthermore, there was nothing askew with her clothing, you know? There were no <laughs> suspicious wrinkles. Rips. Or- uh, nothing, no rips, no no wrinkles. I mean, clearly I had not hurt the girl. I, I And, and the, they started to realize that she must be drugged. That was the only explanation. So in a sense, they realized I had brought a helpless, their helpless daughter home intact. Kind of a hero. Almost. Right. So rather, so their hostility turned to a kind of like a quiet thank you. They didn't say it out loud, but here I am like with my St. John's, yes, sir, no, ma'am. No, no, absolutely. I did not take anything myself. Uh, I don't know why she's so tired, blah, 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 blah. 
So in, a, in the end, they kind of like gave me a pass and uh, didn't pull out the shotgun. But that was the end of Cheryl. I called her the next morning and uh, found out that her mother had gone through her purse and found pills and marijuana, and she was grounded for the for the summer, more or less. And uh, she blamed me. She blamed me because I didn't have the sense to go through her purse before I brought her home. <laughs> so that was the that end was of my, kind of my, rude of you. You should have gone through and made sure. Yeah, she- I should have thought of that. Right? I didn't even know she had drugs in her purse, but I should have. I don't know. So you didn't go out with her again? She didn't become your girlfriend? No, I never spoke to her again. But I was very philosophical about it. I got to leave St. John's on about the highest note I could, considering. Here's the deal. Four years ago, I had a plan to fit in at that school. And my mother had gotten me sick with this acne problem. And basically doomed me to four years of social isolation. There was not a damn thing I could do about it. And even at age 70, I completely agree that there was not a damn thing I could do about it. That's how deep a hole I was in. You know, Mm -hmm. didn't have the money to run with these kids. I didn't have the social skills to be funny. And I certainly didn't have the looks. You know, I was an outcast. So when I say that I never dated in high school, tough, but that's just the way it is. You got to have that dream experience that every, everybody wants. It was wants. nice to have that really great dream experience. It's kind of like someone said, well, you've had a tough four years, so I'm gonna, we're going to throw you a little, a little present for, for trying as hard as you could. Yeah. Well, if you had one thing to go back and do something differently in your childhood, in high school, anywhere in there uh, before you graduated, what what would be the one thing you'd change? I think that's a really good question. What would I have done if I could have changed? You know, no one's ever asked me that question before. Say you had a magic wand and like beyond, you know, you could, you could wave it and you would have had a girlfriend or you could wave it and you, you know, wouldn't have got caught stealing or you, you. Chad, no, that's a scary thought. So, (laughs) If there was like one thing that had changed, my mother would have taken me to the dermatologist the day I had the the breakout. Yeah. The dermatologist would have gotten that thing under control, lickety split, and there would have been no scarring. I would have gone out for the basketball team. I would have done well. I was, you know, a very good basketball player, tallest boy in my class Mm -hmm. and very strong. I would have gotten a girlfriend. There were definitely girls like that, Nancy Pax. I mean, I was a smart boy. I mean, the girls would have no trouble talking to me. You know, I was a little moody, a little, you know, but, you know, girls like moody boys. I would have have had a girl. I would have done, and I would have danced at the parties. I would have danced at the parties instead of hiding in the shadows. I would have graduated as an almost normal teenager, mm-hmm. I would have dated in college. My life would have been totally different. And you know what? I wouldn't have gotten thrown out of graduate school. And guess what? I would have never learned to dance. And if I'd never learned to dance, I would never end up with the largest dance studio in America. So here's what I, I, I say. We look at a poor man like Stephen Hawking with his uh, horrible crippling disease. Would he have penetrated the mysteries of the universe given his handicap? I can't answer for sure, 
But I know that my handicaps made me the person I I became later in life. If you want to learn more about Rick Archer, visit ssqq.com. And if you enjoyed my interview with Rick, please rate and review Intriguing Interviews at Apple Podcasts. Because if you don't, I'll call in my mafia connections and you'll wake up with a horse head in your bed. Next time on Intriguing Interviews, we'll follow Rick to college and hear some of his most bizarre stories yet. We'll discover the 50 ways to lose your lover. We'll hear shocking words of wisdom from a blind philosophy professor. And we'll learn how a 15-year-old girl tried to seduce Rick by summoning the dead. That and more next time on a spooky edition of Intriguing Interviews. Thank you.